You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, where we're going to continue to look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I just want you to think a little bit about what you've had to give up for Jesus. Things like, uh, you know, different sinful pleasures and vices, uh, lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, immoralities, drunkenness, covetousness, slander, gossip, uh, you know, having uh, somebody else control you. Uh, I mean, is that a bummer? Uh, that's why people don't come to the to know the Lord, right? They they don't want to give up those things, and so they would rather have what they see as control of their life and those sins than Christ, and not be able to do those things. But I mean, you know, is it worth it? Think about uh, you know the times you have maybe endured some persecution, some suffering. Rejections, maybe lost a job, maybe been passed over for a promotion, maybe have really missed out on making some good money and some crooked business deals. Maybe you were laughed at or ridiculed or mocked or rejected because you were a follower of Christ, one of those born again believers, as if there was any other kind. I mean, is it is it worth it? I mean, is heaven a boring place? You know, this monotonous, bleached out area where people who escape hell go to sit around for eternity. It's kind of like a white padded cell for the mentally insane. That's how the world a lot of times pictures heaven, right? You can either party down and have great fun sinning now... And perish in hell, or you could give up all the pleasures that you could have had in this life and then go to the bleached out padded cell for eternity. Of course, who would expect that sort of propaganda from Satan, the God of this world, who wants to make sin as attractive as possible and wants to make heaven as dreary and boring as one can possibly imagine. And as we might expect, it will be the exact opposite. William Dyer, minister of the gospel in Chesham, England, wrote, quote, Oh, poor soul, this is all the hell that you shall ever have. Therefore, be of good cheer. Here you have your bad things, your good things are yet to come. Here you have your bitter things, but your sweet things are yet to come. Here you have your prison, but your palace is yet to come. Here you have your rags, your royal robes are yet to come. Here you have your sorrow, your joy is yet to come. Here you have your hell, your heaven is yet to come. After the cup of affliction comes the cup of salvation. The sweetness of the crown, which shall be enjoyed, will make amends for the bitterness of the cross, which was endured. Oh, sirs, under the greatest troubles lie your greatest treasures. Patience for sorrow shall reap a golden crop of joy in heaven. Those who sow in holiness in the seed time of their lives shall reap happiness in the harvest of eternity. Oh, sirs, never think to have an end to your sorrow until there is an end to your sin. The apostle tells us our light affliction is producing in us exceeding eternal weight of glory. A grain of affliction works a weight of glory. Oh, what a short moment of pain works an eternity of pleasures. Therefore, saints, be of good cheer. 
Here is comfort for you. Your best days are yet to come. You are subjects who are beloved entirely, cordially, infinitely with an undying love, end quote. We've been looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we have seen, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks, some scary things. As we have considered the torments and agony of hell for those who will not repent and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We have trembled to consider how bad hell will actually be, but have fallen short of how bad it will really be. Yet there are two other people in our story. And we want to talk about them this morning and where they're at, which is in glory. So follow along in your Bible as I read Luke 16, 19 through 31, where Luke writes, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send into my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not come also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now from this text... I'm going to show you six realities of heaven and then I'm going to just add one for good measure to make it that perfect heavenly number of seven. And I want to do that just to bless you. I want to do that to encourage you. I want to do it so that it will prompt you to praise God, to have hope for the future, you who know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, may this bait you to turn from your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. So in our last two messages on this parable, I primarily spoke to unbelievers. This morning, I speak to you who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and who eagerly anticipate dying to be with him. 
The first thing we learn is your death will open the gates of heaven to you. Look at Luke 16, 22, where we read, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. We have already discussed the reality of death. You're going to die. You're going to die and you don't know when unless the rapture happens. And if that happens, then you get to be one of the privileged few in the history of the world who don't have to die. But for most of us, we'll most likely die and have to pass through the river of death to get to the other side. I mean, just see yourself there lying in your hospital bed. Loved ones uh, concerned about you are gathered around. Some are praying. They're, they're talking in hushed tones and wringing their hands because they know the end is almost here for you. The doctor comes in and he says it's, it's only a matter of time. A few more minutes, maybe an hour, and they'll be gone. You're about ready to shed your outer man. You know, like kind of like a butterfly, you know, sheds its cocoon that it's kind of confined in. That's what's going to happen. And as you lie there and you can't move and you can't respond and they're hovering around you, lying there motionless in your bread, bed, finally you quit breathing. Your heart stops and you die. Now, those standing around you begin to cry and they begin to kiss your hand and kiss your forehead and whisper sweet words of love to your corpse. But you're not there. That's not you anymore. You've exited. Effortlessly, you have slipped out of your body into weightless glory. Immediately you are awake and your mind is racing with perfect clarity. Your senses are keener than they ever were on earth. No part of you hurts. No part of you suffers. You feel great. Many things which on earth you didn't quite understand are obvious now. Of course there's life after death. You knew you didn't believe in vain. And look at yourself. You're just kind of radiating light. And you slowly ascend and you see your earthly shell down below and all those loved ones gathered around it. And you just know everything's going to be all right forever. Isaac Watts wrote, Sin, my worst enemy before, shall vex my eyes and ears no more. My inward foes shall all be slain, nor Satan break my peace again. Then shall I see and hear and know all I desire or wish to be low, and every power find sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. Thomas Watson said the believer's dying day is his ascension day into glory. That is when you get crowned. That's when you go from whatever this world has for you to great glory. Though no one knows when the rapture is going to occur, it could happen in any moment. 
that would be better. We could be those who never even have to die. I, I'm for that. You know, I was talking to my son. He said, do you think there's going to be like a World War III dad? I said, no. No, I don't think so. I think the world is so bad now that if we ever get into that sort of magnitude, other than just the final conflict leading to the second coming. So he says, you don't think the one be I said, well, where is the godly nation that's standing up for right now? Where is it? There isn't one. Paul reminds us, we will not all sleep. We will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we will be changed. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's good. And it can happen at any moment like a thief, you know, like a a woman who's pregnant and knows she's going to go into labor eventually. But doesn't know exactly when. Well, when you look out there, it looks like we're pretty pregnant for rapture. (laughs) And then all of a sudden in a moment we're taken. We're like Enoch who walked with God and was not for the Lord took him. J.T. McFarlane wrote these words about Enoch and God. Quote, they walked and talked down many years. The way was called the Valley of Tears. But he who walked with God received such comfort that he little grieved. And walking thus and talking so, the man of God fared onward slow until they reached a secret spot. God took him and the man was not. That's what's going to happen. There's going to be a generation of Christians who, in walking onward slow, all of a sudden are not. For the Lord's going to take them into glory. But whether you have to go through the river of death or whether you get raptured into glory, be of good courage. Because death will open heaven's gates to you. Secondly, you will have angels as guides. Notice in verse 22 that Lazarus is carried away by the angels. Now, does this mean we can form a doctrine from this text saying, for sure, we know for certain that every single person who dies as a believer will have an es- you know, angelic escort into heaven. No, I don't think so, but why not? It could be. Doesn't Hebrews 1.14 describing angels say, are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit eternal life? Yes. That's what the word of God says. And how many angels are there? Only thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands and myriads of myriads, however that is. It's the biggest number multiplied describing. So there's plenty to go around. And what do we see them doing in the Bible? We see them ministering to the saints, don't we? We see them serving the saints and sending messages and giving warnings and feeding and protecting and helping and fighting evil and rescuing from prison and fetching the believers from the four corners of the earth. Angels, those mighty, holy creatures who have never sinned, serving sinners. Think about it. 
I mean, it's kind of enough to even almost make you blush, isn't it? To think that they're watching and they have been watching you all the days of your life. I mean, to think that God is watching is one thing because you know he's all powerful and he can handle it. But I'm sure the angels are going, he's doing it again. He just repented of that this morning. I, I, uh, he just remember when he prayed that he asked God for forgiveness. Why is he doing that again? And the other one goes, I don't know. It's a mystery to me. That sin must really have a hold on them. Yes, but our God's grace is sufficient. He'll get over it. Jesus affectionately speaking of believers as little ones said in Matthew 18.10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Does this mean everybody has a guardian angel? Well, it could be. It does say they're angels, so we know that in some instances, at least, people have angels assigned to them. Why not? The moment you pass from this life, imagining your eyes open and there is your friend. You've never met him before. You don't know his name. But from the moment you were born, he's been with you all of your life. Helping you, serving you, running God's errands on your behalf. And he says, yes, I have the privilege of introducing you to your king. And he takes you there. Angels will serve you and guide you in heaven. Third, you will be exalted for your humility on earth. You know, there are only two things we can take with us to heaven, right? Power tools (laughs) and a fly rod. Um, No, there's only two things, right? People, we have one to the Lord. And godly character. Those are the only two things we get to take to heaven. And look again at verse 22. And notice this other little gem here. Lazarus was carried to Abraham's bosom. You mean Abraham, the father of faith? Abraham, the most revered of all the Old Testament believers? Abraham, the one who left All to follow God's call on his life. Abraham, the one who lifted up his knife to kill his son, his only son of promise, whom he loved. That Abraham, Abraham, the one that God made an everlasting covenant with when he said all the nations will be blessed in your seed. That Abraham, yes, that Abraham. Here we have the poor Sickly, despised, shamed, nobody, Lazarus on earth. Now sitting and leaning in the bosom of Abraham, the most exalted person in heaven. Jesus was on earth and so Jesus wasn't there. And the next highest on the rung is Abraham. And where is the poor man Lazarus? Well, though last on earth, he is what? First in heaven. He is first in heaven. Just as the apostle John lay on Jesus' breast at the Passover immediately before Jesus died, so Lazarus is here pictured as feasting with Abraham and leaning on his bosom in this heavenly feast. And he is no longer poor. He is no longer destitute. He is no longer shamed. And he's no longer sickly. He is exalted to the very first place of honor next to Abraham. 
Why? Because he was rich? No. Because he was popular on earth? No. Because he accomplished a whole bunch of really cool deeds on earth that made him kind of a, a, a figure of history so that we would all know that, whoa, look what he did. Obviously, he's going to get this incredible place. No. Then why was he there? Because he humbled himself, repented of his sins, and put his faith in the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. That simple act of faith and trust in Christ alone exalted him in heaven. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew twenty three twelve, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James said in James four ten, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Peter says in first Peter five, six, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time. Have you struggled to be humble? Being humble is one of those humbling things, isn't it? You know, as soon as you get to the place where you've got some humility, then you get proud about it. You know, you labor to put to death your pride. And you have tried to just lay yourself low and and times just let other people walk on you. To turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to refuse to assert your own rights, to refuse to defend yourself, to take the blame for somebody else's fault and say nothing about it for their credit. Giving all the credit to God and to others, even though you could have tried to grab it for yourself, you have been humbled. Does that describe you? If it does, be prepared for exaltation. To have Jesus say to you, you, you who have wandered to the back, get up here. Walk by those kings, those princes, those government rulers. Walk by all of those mighty men and women on earth and come up here and sit next to me. See that housewife there who has labored so hard to raise her children to know and love Jesus who's changed diapers ad infinitum. Who's scrubbed floors and done dishes and done laundry and tried to love her husband and love her kids and serve people behind the scenes and making meals and no one knows her. There's no biography about that woman. Do you actually think she's going to be set in the back? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Jesus says in Revelation 3.21 to those who are willing to humbly and zealously repent. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Picture yourself there if you dare to believe the word of God sitting on Jesus's throne. That is the promise that Jesus never breaks. You humble yourself here, you'll be exalted in heaven. Four, you will enjoy fellowship with the saints. Look one more time at verse 22 and notice Lazarus was carried away to Abraham, another believer. In heaven, you will have fellowship 
with other believers. You know, there are those who say, and I can't believe it when I read it, things like, well, in heaven, we'll, we won't remember our life here on earth. Our memories will be erased and, and we won't have recollection. We won't mem- remember each other. We'll have the, you know, a brain wipe and we'll go to all these people kind of being like, who are you? I don't know. I don't even know who I am. You know, this is Satan's attempt again to diss God and diss heaven to make it think not only are we going to be in the padded white cell, we're not even going to know who we are in that cell or anyone else. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Remember in verse 25 where Abraham says to the rich man, child, remember. And he can remember. And you can remember. You will know your friends. You will know those loved ones who have died in the Lord, who have gone before you. You will know your departed husband and your departed wife or children. You will remember your life here on earth and your fellowship will be sweet. You can sit around with other believers and angels and talk about how God saved you where you were going and what he did to rescue you. And you will share your testimonies and you will survey your life and you will remember all those things and talk about how when you were even unfaithful, he remained faithful because he couldn't deny himself. And oh, how long and sweet will your fellowship be with all the men and women of all the ages who have come to know God and yet you'll have an eternity to sit down and get to know them all and then you can start on the angels after that. C.H. Spurgeon in a sermon entitled Christ Triumphant mused about what it'll be like as Christ reigns in heavenly triumph saying, quote, I see the great mass of his people streaming in. The apostles are the first to arrive in one goodly fellowship singing praises to their Lord. And then a long array of those who through cruel mockings and blood, through fame and through flame and sword have followed their master. These are those whom the world was not worthy, brightest among the stars of heaven. Regard also the mighty preachers and confessors of the faith, Chrysostom. Athanasius, Augustine, and the like. And then let your eye run along the glittering ranks till you come to the days of the Reformation. I see in the midst of that squadron, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, three holy brothers. And there I see a number that no man can number converted to God through these mighty reformers. Then looking down to their own time, I see the stream broaden and wider For many are the soldiers who have in these last times entered into their master's triumph. For every soldier is a trophy. Every warrior of Christ's army is another proof of his power to save and his victory over death and hell, end quote. Oh, that's good. Just think about all those people in heaven. Of course you'll have fellowship in heaven. Of course it'll be sweet. And of course it'll be for eternity. Fifth. And you will be comforted there. Look towards the end of verse 25. After Abraham tells the rich man he has received all the good he will ever receive in this life only. He then says, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. Lazarus received his bad things in this life. But now in heaven, he's being comforted. Comforted. I mean, you have to ask yourself, is this life a burden to you, believer? Are you suffering in this life? Do you have trials with relationships, with your marriage, with your work, 
with your children? Do you have trials with sickness? Do you have trials with finances? Is your righteous soul tormented by sin as Lot's was living in Sodom and you just read the paper and you just look at the news and you're just sick and tired of it and you wish it would just all go away? Have hope. It will. And you will be comforted. In heaven, you will never be sick, never hungry, never tormented, never vexed by those sins which in this life just made your life miserable. And Jesus' promise will be fulfilled when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Thomas More wrote, quote, Joy of the desolate light of the straying, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the comforter, tenderly saying, Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot cure. Heaven will be the cure to all that bothers you here. And you will be perfect and you will be at peace and rest. And there won't be any more fretting or anxiety or afflictions from sin. Comfort will reign in heaven. Six, you'll be protected from evil and sin. In this world, the godly are often neglected and oppressed and persecuted often by the rich, like the rich man who, living in luxury, neglected, and by doing so, oppressed the poor man, Lazarus. And this is what Abraham is referring to when he says to the rich man in verse 25, during your life, you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. The rich man was living in luxury. He saw Lazarus. He knew Lazarus' name, but he didn't help him. He didn't serve him. He didn't clothe him and feed him and help him get back to health. And I don't know about you, but this is kind of hard to take, isn't it? You know, you, you, when you witness to people, they often bring this up. Well, if God is such a good God, then how come there's so much evil on this world? Why doesn't he do something about it? Do you ever think that way? It's like, listen, man, I keep saying no, and they're having fun. And I say no, and they're having fun. And I say no, and they're having fun. Look, at they're doing great. They're lying. They're cheating. They're paying people under the table. They're bribing, and their business is flourishing. And I'm almost about ready to go bankrupt while they just have a great time. Why? Because I'm following Christ. If you've ever felt that way, then you're right with the psalmist. Who in Psalm 73 Verse 2 and following says this, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat, and they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness and the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high and they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades to the earth. Is this what you see in the world? It's what I see in the world. I see this every day and you can be tempted. Your feet can almost slip when you begin to envy the pride and the arrogance and the ungodliness of the godly because for this short time they're enjoying themselves. 
And the psalmist goes on to say in verses 13 and 14 with some exasperation and frustration, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I mean, what is this whole following God thing? It's just caused me misery. It's made me lose out. I mean, the people who aren't following God, look at them. They are, in the words of Psalm 37, flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. And then look at me. Every morning I'm oppressed because I'm following God. And so if you've done what is right and you've suffered for it, if you've sometimes wondering if following Christ is worth it, if heaven is worth it, because you've never even seen Jesus and you've never even been to heaven, you're believing all these things by faith, then you're in good company with the psalmist who wondered if it was this whole following God thing, a foolish mistake. But he gets his act together in verse 17 of Psalm 73 where he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to the destruction. Oh, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your works. Listen, in heaven, there's not going to be any oppression. No one's going to get away with anything that's evil, anything that's bad. You're not going to be tempted because all evil will be locked out. And all righteousness locked in. The rich man calls to Abraham and says, get Lazarus to go on an errand of mercy and come to hell to minister to me here so that I might be comforted in this miserable place. But look at verse 26. Abraham replies to the rich man, between us and you there is a great chasm thick so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. That yawning gulf is not only a, a wall to keep evil out of heaven where all believers will be, it is also a protection so that no believer will ever have to run on an errand to hell. You need not worry about being attacked or mugged or swindled or robbed. No evil will harm you ever again. John speaking of the glories of heaven in the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22 verses 14 and 15 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and they enter by the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral persons and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. The picture here is that believers are in this safe haven, this place where no evil dwells and all the evil is outside. It's in the lake of fire. It's outside the city. It is away 
And they never need to worry about that evil entering in. This means that all those evils outside will never touch you, but that's not all. It also means the evils within won't bother you. You know, if somebody took you to a desert island and put some invisible field around that island so no demons or Satan could get near you, you'd still be wicked. But when you cross the river of death, you will appear on the opposite shore clothed in the righteousness of Christ and imagine never having an evil craving for sin again. No jealousy, no envy, no covetousness, no lusting, no lying, never an evil thought ever again, ever again. When you come to Christ in this life, you're freed from the power of sin Sin no longer is master of you. You now have a choice. You can obey when before you could not. And you are freed from the eternal consequences of sin, but you're not freed from the temporary consequences of sin. But when you die, your battle with Satan and sin and your flesh are over. Those things that sneak up on you in this life that you have confessed to the Lord a thousand times and you hate going back to the Lord, but you keep going there and you keep confessing and you're hoping they go away will go away. Paul spoke of this in Romans chapter 7 verses 24 and 25 where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? There was a certain tribe of people at that time and uh, their way of punishing Murderers was to take the corpse of the person who was murdered and strap it to the murderer. Face to face, body to body, arm to arm, leg to leg, they would strap them. And in just a couple days, that body would begin to decay. And as that person breathed in the decay, that dead body would kill them. And this is how Paul pictures his flesh, his sin-cursed flesh, which is always wanting pampering and sin and things that are contrary to the word of God. He just sees it as clinging to him like a body of death. And he just wants to get that thing off of him. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He will set him free from that body of death, along with all those who know Christ. Paul speaks of of how this will happen at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15 as he has talked about the rapture and, and he has talked about how we will be changed. At the very end, he explains how this mortal, this perishable body will be replaced with an immortal, imperishable one. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 53 and following, for this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ah. That's good. Your fleshly body, which is Satan's target and sin's stronghold in your life, will be left behind. All those sinful cravings which cling to your flesh and this life like barnacles to the hull of a ship will be all scraped off. You'll enter into glory perfect. Now there's one more truth that isn't in our text and 
I, I possess no powers of exegesis to drag it from the parable. But I'm going to give it to you anyway, since it's the best thing about heaven. And that is this. You will see Jesus. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, which records Job and his suffering and restoration, possibly even before the time of Abraham, speaks of dying. And when he speaks of dying, he says this in Job 19, verses 25 through 27. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will take his stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Think about that. He didn't know about Jesus. I mean, he didn't know his name would be Jesus. He didn't know about Jesus dying on the cross. And rise again on the third day. What did he know? Uh, Probably all he knew was that promise given to Adam and Eve that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And believing that, he believed there was a redeemer. He believed that he would be delivered from sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. He says, I know my redeemer lives. He believes in the resurrection. And after my skin is destroyed and I rot in the grave, yet from my flesh, I'm going to see God. And my eyes are going to see him and behold him. Oh, it just makes my heart faint within me. Does it make your heart faint within you to think that you will see Jesus face to face? And he's not going to be this gigantic thing. He's going to be a man. You know, I don't know, probably 6'4". <laughs> Sandy blonde hair. I don't know. But he's going to be a man. And he'll be a man for all eternity to remind you of his love for you. How he, though existing in glory with the Father, humbled himself And becoming a man, even to the point of death, death on the cross. He'll be in that scarred, nail-pierced body for all eternity to remind you of his love for you. John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as yet as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will see him just as he is. There was a little girl who was born blind after a thorough examination by the eye doctor. The eye doctor told her parents, I think I might be able to do an operation and restore her sight. And so the parents gave consent and said, okay, okay, we'll let you operate on our daughter. And so he did, and the operation was long, and when it was over, the doctor said, I I think I've had success. And so it took a while as the bandages were there. And when it came time to remove the bandages, and the family was there, and the doctor was there, the doctor asked the little girl, I'm going to take off your bandages now. Who do you want to see first? And to his surprise, the little girl said with decision and anticipation, I want to see him who enabled me to see. We are all born into this world blind. 
we live in the land of darkness and shadows. And it's not till God and His grace reveals to us the great light which when coming into the world enlightens every man and we see our sin and we see Jesus' holiness and we see that he died in the cross for our sins and we see that he has given us the grace to come to that understanding so that we can repent and believe and be saved that those bandages are pulled off but still they're only pulled off in faith we still don't actually see Jesus and we still don't see heaven and all, we have to live our whole lives here on earth in faith. But when death comes, the bandages are pulled off. And then we see our Savior face to face. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to look at Jesus for a thousand years. And then I'm going to say, where's Paul? <laughs> As we read in Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And Annie Ross Cousin wrote, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. When you get to heaven, Jesus is going to be everything. And if you are out there, I've talked to some people who, when faced with death or a sickness, are scared. I said, man, I kind of envy you. You might be able to get to see Jesus before me. I don't want to see Jesus. Then you need Jesus. Because those who love Jesus want to be with Jesus. And though they're not going to expedite their departure from this world, they're looking forward to be with their Savior more than anything else. So what's the application of all of this? Three things. Unbeliever. I hope what we have talked about this morning will tempt you to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You know, if the threatenings of hell and judgment and eternal fire won't do it, then maybe just the grandness and glories of heaven will. Henry Ward Beecher, who was a great preacher in the early 1900s, once received a letter begging him to preach next Sunday on hell because the writer of the letter said, I've got this huge sin I'm being tempted with and I need a sermon on hell to keep me from that sin. And so the next Sunday, Beecher chose to preach on In My Father's House, There Are Many Mansions, and said in his message that if such a theme could not save a man, then he knows of no other which can. You who have Satan for your captain and sin as your compass and hell, the port that you're bound for, you need to come to Christ. You need to abandon ship. You need to go the other direction. You need to quit living for yourself and parting on the deck of the Titanic. Jesus said, as many as receive me, I will give you the right to become the children of God, even those who believe on my name. 
He calls out to you in his word. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Turn to Christ and believe in him. Don't let your sin keep you from glory. Secondly, if you are a believer, there is application here for you as well. Thoughts of heaven should cause you to strive to live a holy life. When you know you're going to be holy for all eternity and you're going to be around holy angels and a holy Jesus, you'll want to live holy now. Why? As Jesus prayed in that prayer, that model prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're looking to live now like you will live for eternity. John said in 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Timothy Boyer, commenting on Richard Baxter's view of heaven, said, quote, we use the expression today that some people are too heavenly minded to be of much earthly good. The Baxter would say to us, unless you are heavenly minded, you will be of no earthly good. Baxter maintains, quote, as digestion turns food into nourishment for the body, so meditation turns the truths received and remembered into warm affection, firm resolution, and a holy lifestyle, end quote. Harriet Martineau, who is unbelieving English feminist philosopher in the 1800s, she denied that there was a heaven and she denied that there was a hell. And one time she said this to a Christian acquaintance. If I believed in immortality as you believe in it, as you profess to do so, I should live a better life than you appear to live. I should strive more earnestly and bear more patiently. I do not think I should be troubled with a fear or worried with any earthly burden. I think it would be all sunlight and joy if I believed as you do in eternal things and resurrection and a life beyond in which all things will be made right. End quote. May we all receive that rebuke from the unbeliever. Third, believer, you should praise God. When you think of these things, you should praise God. I don't care what you're going through. These things should make you praise God. If there's ever a time where you're having a hard time, having a joyful heart of praise to God, just think about these things we've talked about this morning. And praise Him. Praise Him from all of your heart. Anonymous poet wrote this. Oh, for a sight, a pleasing sight of our Almighty Father's throne, there sits our Savior crowned with light, clothed in a body like our own. Adoring saints around Him stand and thrones and powers before Him fall. The God shines gracious through the man and sheds sweet glories on them all. Oh, what amazing joys they feel while to their golden harps they sing and sit on every heavenly hill and spread the triumphs of their king. When shall the day, dear Lord, appear that I shall mount to dwell above and stand and bow and worship there and view thy face and sing thy love. And that's what we're going to do right now.